We focus a lot on how disgusted we are. I guess I can say we. Uh, We focus a lot on how disgusted we are with the commercialization of the season. Uh, But it hit me this year, and, and I get that, but it hit me this year that we don't talk a lot about the sentimentality and the romanticism that also goes on. Um, it, it seems like, or I guess I should say, I, I ask questions like, why all the nostalgia, why all the romantic ideations and, and feel-good stories of transformation of all the Grinches and, and all of the Scrooges and, uh, and of frozen hearts that are melted by heat, of, of ki- by the heat of kindness and love. And, and I think... And I could be wrong, but I think the answer lies in that we spend, you know, we're we're now in December and we've spent 11 months of just kind of this onslaught of of day in and day out and and realizing that that the world is broken and life uh, is hard and people suffer, um, problems exist and evil abounds and injustice occurs and relationships aren't easy uh, and they often fail. And for some reason, it's like we, we think somehow or the world thinks somehow that this is the time of year when all that's going to be fixed and changed. As if snow is going to do that. If, if it ever comes, right? Um, they, they, they look to those snowy evenings and, and decorations and music and peppermint lattes and parties and... Even those sappy movies and family gatherings. Then we really looked at that new calendar year, right? We're looking for that ne- you know, next week. We can't wait. You know, 18 behind us, 19 ahead, and we think that that's going to solve it. But really for some, all of those things really just, for, for many people, we have to admit, it just makes things worse. They're reminded more and more of what's not right and the sadness that they feel. And what's ironic about all this is that what's being replaced during this season is the celebration of the birth of the only one who is not only able to bring about the change, particularly in our hearts, but the only one that is able to to bring that healing and that forgiveness and that hope and that peace. And that one, of course, is the Lord Jesus. It's Jesus' birth who we celebrate. And so, with that in mind, and you may already be there, but if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, that will be our text. And I am going to read it again. I, I really think it's worth hearing again. So if you would stand in the honor of God's word as you've turned there and hear now the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind... So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And for that which has not been told, 
them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And by his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Let's pray together. Father, you uh, know... The struggle, this preparation has been. And so I pray, Father, that your word would go forth. That you would set aside, overcome, take away anything within me that might hinder that word going forth and being heard. Would you plant the truth deep within our hearts? May we anew and afresh see and behold Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Some 600 to 700 years before His birth, God through the prophet Isaiah spoke of a Messiah. And in these four, in this portion of Isaiah, really starting back at Isaiah 42 through the end of 53, uh, the prophet designates him as a servant. Um, and this servant would do for Israel what Israel could not do for itself. It, it, he, will, he will do, has done, uh, what we could not do for ourselves. 
provides salvation. And our New Testament passage that we read uh, earlier makes it very clear that this servant that we read about in Isaiah 52 and 53 is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. As Philip is, it comes on by the angel's you know, instruction, goes and, and addresses uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, and he asks, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian, no, I, I really don't. I, I'm going to need somebody to tell me. And so Philip comes up and sits down and begins to explain. And, it's, and I don't know about you, but it's fascinated me. Every time I've read this this week, that that Ethiopian is reading the same passage that we're reading tonight. Just, just let that kind of sink in a minute. And the word says that Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. It doesn't get any clearer than that. The Messiah, the servant in this passage is Jesus. And, and as I prayed, this has been a struggle. We won't go into all that, but I want you to know that, that the goal tonight, this is what I want to do tonight. I want to tell you the good news about Jesus. Because if it worked for Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and if we're in the same passage, it'll work for us. It is enough. To do what has already been done. So our outline, it's in the back of your bulletin if you so want to follow. Uh, we're going to look through these 15 verses. There are five points. Don't be overwhelmed. It will go by quickly. Uh, but each of these, they're stanzas, each made up of three verses. And each of these I've kind of summarized into specific uh, descriptions of this servant that we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and by the way, we're not going to be able to cover, cover everything in these 15 verses. Just know that up front. And so if you're sitting there and you hear me go through one of these stanzas and you think to yourself, well, he didn't cover this, you're probably right. But that's for you this week, okay? What I feel that I've done, I hope, uh, will help us uh, see Jesus on this Christmas Eve Eve. All right? So let's uh, begin first with the promised Servant. The last or the last three verses of chapter fifty-two are actually a summary of the entire song, and so if we read through these verses, we'll see uh, some very specific language. Uh, in verse thirteen, we're going to see a language of uh, success and exaltation. In verse fourteen, we're going to see language of uh, really a repulsive humiliation. And then in verse fifteen, we're going to see language of cleansing and of speechless awe. And all of that is going to be fleshed out. Because it's a summary, it's going to be fleshed out in the rest of the song. So what I want to do is, rather than cover those things and then recover them again, is I want us to look at a specific or draw out another point, another simple point that will carry us really throughout the rest of our study. And I want you to notice that the language of this first stanza and really throughout the rest of the chapter uh, is language of promise. It's language of surety. God is making a promise of things to come. He's making a promise of what his servant will do. And notice the language in, in verse 13. He shall be high and lifted up. Uh, he shall be high, uh, ex I'm sorry, shall be exalted. 
The same is in verse 15. The cleansing shall take place. If you look down at verse 10, he shall see his offspring. The will of the Lord shall prosper and so forth and so on throughout again through the end of the chapter. Absolute surety. Things that he's speaking of are going to happen. It's a promise. But also notice in verse 14, it's not written in future tense, it's written in past tense. And some people get all bent out of shape because of that, and it, but it really shouldn't confuse us and it shouldn't cause us to question the, uh, the, va- the validity or the veracity of what's being said here. Uh, it's really what, what's actually, what, what Isaiah is doing is what's very common through prophetic literature. And we see that whole past tense and future tense in that prophetic literature. We see it throughout this chapter. And the point that's being made is very simple. And it is this. What is to come in the future, what's being pointed to, what's being addressed and described is so sure it's as if it's already happened. That's how how sure we can be. We can count on it. Because it is in fact true. So now let's go back to verse 13. And I want you to notice God says Christ would act wisely. He shall act wisely. Again, there's surety here. The Hebrew word combines two things, wisdom and effectiveness. So when we think of or when we read that he will act wisely, we learn that Christ was and is someone who knew exactly what to do in order to bring about a desired And a decided result. What he was going to do was not going to be happenstance. What he was going to do was not going to be haphazard. What he was going to do was not going to... He wasn't going to be indecisive or he wasn't going to waffle around uh, back and forth between options as if he really wasn't sure which direction to go or he couldn't make up his mind. No. No. There was a plan. The plan was a good plan. The plan was the best plan. He knew that plan and he was going to carry it out. He did carry it out. So my question before, before we even move on, I want to ask, I'm going to ask some questions as we move through these at each point. But the question I want to ask is this, are you... Trusting in and resting in the surety of Jesus Christ, the promised servant. Are you resting in that? That's my hope because we all live on this side of the cross, looking back, which allows us to look back and see that those promises that God made six to seven hundred years earlier have come to pass, have been fulfilled. Listen to John chapter tw- in John chapter 12, Jesus' own words. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. And then John follows that up with, He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Those have got to be allusions to Isaiah 52 and 53. And then, of course, Paul in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly 
exalted him. Isaiah 53. And those are just two examples. We don't have time to go through example after example of the allusions, of the direct quotes and the allusions to this passage. God said it would happen and described it as already happening. It did in fact happen. So church tonight, behold your promised servant. Rest in him. But he's not only the promised servant, he's also the rejected servant. And I waffle back and forth between rejected and ordinary. That's why ordinary is in your outline. I overlooked the change there. I'm going to refer to him as the rejected servant. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 53, Isaiah describes Jesus as a young plant that is vulnerable and weak and fragile and is a root that came out of, you just have to get this picture of this dry, cracked ground. Have you, you've seen uh, either a small pond or a river or maybe even a lake that has been in the midst of a drought and there's, there's absolutely no water to be found and it has been that way for so long that you begin to see the cracks and the dirt and, uh, of that bed. And you see the idea of this small little spring. And, and sometimes, or, and when we think about who he's describing, it is, it can be a tad uncomfortable. But one of the things that he's doing is he's describing the very unexpected and inauspicious beginning of the servant of Jesus. Of course, we notice to be true, again, we're on this side of the cross and we look back and we know from Luke chapter 2, uh, you know, he was... He was born of parents who were really just average people. He's born in a, uh, a stable, a shepherd's cave in this very small, little, obscure town. He's visited by a few scraggly shepherds as he's laying in this feeding trough surrounded by animals. And then as time moves on, he's displaced for several years with nowhere really to go or going but nowhere really to lay his head and so the, really in this beginning there's nothing real kingly about this beginning I mean he's from the line of David we know he's from a royal line but there's there's really nothing about how it all started to say he's royal and things didn't get any better as he got older. Actually, it got worse. As he grew, there wasn't anything really impressive about him physically. Uh, there wasn't anything that would cause him to stand out or to make heads turn toward him anyway. Actually, just the opposite. He wasn't strikingly handsome, if handsome at all. There wasn't anything that would draw attention to him or set him apart from other people. And I, th I think he would probably blend in more in a group than he actually would uh, take a room by his gregarious charisma. Just pretty blah. Isaiah also says that people would respond to that ordinariness. And that is a word, I looked it up. That ordinariness would cause people, apart from divine intervention, 
would cause people to reject him, despise him, ignore him, and mock him. They wouldn't believe that there was any way. They still don't. Jews still don't today. Again, apart from divine revelation, they do not believe the Messiah could be that ordinary. And the word esteem is actually an accounting term. So here's how how this works. When all is said and done, after they, they look at him and they assess him and they look back and they think about all of his characteristics and they add everything up, it all equals in their minds to one big fat zero. Nothing about it. Nothing to go home to talk about. Nothing to even keep in their memory. And Isaiah is clear that this had a profound effect on him. A profound effect to the point of, just think about being ridiculed, left alone, scorned while he was dwelling among us. And that created a deep, deep sorrow. And it's not just something, as I, as I read and, and, and learned and prepared this week, that this isn't just, many people will just dismiss that and will just say, well, he knows how we felt. It was so much more profound than just knowing how sad we get from time to time. This is a deep, abiding grief and sorrow that he would feel to his very core on a continual basis. And so the question I have for, for anyone tonight, have you been rejecting and despising and ignoring and even mocking the Lord Jesus? Does that describe you? If it does, I want to tell you there's good news. And the good news is that Isaiah says he was just like you and me. Notice the pronouns in 2 and 3. The pronoun we. He's speaking firsthand. He at one time was a part of this larger group that was despising and mocking the coming Messiah. But what had happened? He had an encounter. He, he came, uh, uh, the revelation of the arm of the, of the Lord came to him. And we, when we read of that in Isaiah chapter 6. He was changed because of that revelation. And that same salvation is available to you if you find yourself in that larger group tonight. And let me look, encourage all of us to look differently at the fact that Christ, we, I think, can describe Him as ordinary. Rather than disqualify Him, it actually qualified Him and qualifies Him to be the Savior, your Savior and my Savior, unlike anybody else. As a matter of fact, it's that ordinariness that not only qualifies Him, but it qualifies Him because He is the only one that can save us. He is the only one that can comfort us. He is the only one who has left the comfort and glory of the right hand of the Father, remained God, but took on flesh and dwelt among us entered into the suffering and the sorrow and the rejection and the disdain and the weaknesses that are all a part of being human. 
And it's that, it's that being human and experiencing those things to the core that, that enables Him and qualifies Him to, to redeem us, to salvage us, and to set us free. He's the only one that can do that. And because of that, we are able to cast our cares upon Him. We're able to cast our cares upon Him. We can run to Him. We can trust Him because He knows us and He understands us. He knows what it's like. He does know what it's like to be rejected and lonely. He knows our sadness. He knows our grief. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our temptations. We talked about this a little bit two weeks ago when we talked about Him as our great high priest. But tonight, run to Jesus and behold the rejected servant. Behold Him. In stanza three, we read of Christ as the suffering servant. This is probably the most recognizable of the stanzas because in it we read a very clear and concise description of what we call, and hang in there, don't get scared with the language, but it's called penal substitutionary atonement. And I'll define those for you. Penal simply means and refers to the punishment experienced and the price paid for sin. And of course, substitution means or refers to something being done on behalf of someone else or in someone else's place. And in these verses, Isaiah says that Christ was, and here are the words, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced through, crushed, chastised, and wounded to the point of death. But here's where we need to go back to chapter 52, verse 13, or, uh, verse 14, because here is the description of what that led to. This punishment left him marred to the point of not looking human. Not looking human. And the question is, why? Why was he punished? Isaiah says, for our transgressions. In other words, for our willful rebellion. Why was he punished? For our iniquities. Because of our perversion, the, the perversion of our nature. Why was he punished? To deal with every aspect of our need. He dealt with every moral and spiritual wrong and all the guilt that was ours. He bore our griefs. He bore our sorrows. Anything and everything and that alienated, alienated us from God, He dealt with. He handled in our place, on our behalf. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that for our sake... He being God, right? Our sake, He being God, made Him, Him being Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God. Despite the fact that we had all gone our own way and we're all heading in the opposite direction away from God, He intervened. And this is where the language in chapter 15, or I'm sorry, chapter 52, verse 15 comes in with the language of sprinkling. 
It's language from Leviticus 16. Christ was both our sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat. In other words, he shed his blood that we might be forgiven of our sins. And then our sins were placed on him that he might take them away. And as a result of his work, God's wrath has been satisfied. Payment has been made. And our fellowship restored. All in his act on the cross. And we are therefore at peace with him. Which brings us again to the language of verse 15, chapter 52, because the natural response is a response of respect and a sense of being overwhelmed due to what has been accomplished and how he accomplished it. In the words of one commentator, he said, The one that people regarded as unclean turned out to be the one who cleanses others. It is a a paradox so astonishing, so astounding, that it will dry up every accusation and cause every mouth to be stopped. The wisdom of God displayed in the servant will utterly confound human wisdom. So let me ask a couple of questions. First, for those who have professed Christ and are resting in Him for your salvation because of His work on your behalf. When you think of that sacrifice, when we read through this passage, as we did tonight twice, how do you respond? When you consider His payment for your sin and the free offer of the gospel, does it leave you? Does it still leave you in awe as it did when you first responded in faith to the call of the gospel? Do you still get overwhelmed when you hear the words, His body given for you, His blood shed for you? Even though we hear it every week. Are you confounded by the wisdom of God displayed in the gospel? Behold your suffering, sir. Behold Him tonight. Behold Him through this season. Behold Him in the days and weeks ahead. And for those who aren't Christians, for those who have never professed their faith, I have some very simple questions. Will you acknowledge your separation from Him and your sin that is, that is creating that separation between you and an Almighty God? Will you acknowledge that separation and enmity and will you acknowledge your sin and, a need, and your need of a Savior? Will you repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ and Christ alone? He is your only hope. Look to Christ, the suffering servant. Call on the name of the Lord. The fourth stanza focuses on Christ, the submissive servant. Isaiah says, though he was oppressed and afflicted, though he was unjustly tried, unjustly convicted, unjustly sentenced to death, unjustly crucified, he never once offered any kind of verbal or physical resistance, ever. One example is found in Matthew. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you king of the Jews? He said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. And that, of course, wasn't the only time. 
he was never violent. He never lied. He was never, there was never any wickedness in his heart. Uh, there was never any ulterior motive in his mind. Again, another commentator put it this way. Christ was not caught in some web of events or simply letting everything happen to him. He masterfully decided, accepted, and submitted with a clear-headed, self-restraining voluntariness as he fulfilled a sin-bearing exercise. It's very important. And that's important because we are a willful and rebellious people. And so we need a Savior who is a willful and consenting substitute. It's one of the reasons why animal, the blood of bulls and animals didn't work. We chose, we choose, we chose to rebel. He chose to obey. It was Christ who chose to submit and suffer in our place. And so my, my, by way of application with this submissive servant, I, I really just want to do what Peter does. Again, why, why reinvent the wheel? What does Peter do? Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, encourages his readers to follow Christ's example by doing what? When they're treated unjustly or reviled or suffer at the hands of others, don't respond. And I think that's something... Very, very important for us to understand in the culture in which we live today. And we think, well, it, it, there's so much more to what Jesus did here than to provide us an example. And I completely and totally agree. But Peter says he is an example for us in this way. And why does it work so well? It works so well because guess what? It's the power of the cross. It's Christ and his cross that enables us to do what he's asking us to do. Apart from it, we, we could never do it. So we have Peter telling us, do what Jesus did. But oh, by the way, you're only able to do that as you're sanctified and as you look to Christ because of his cross and what he's done on your behalf and the grace that I've extended to you. And lastly, we have a successful servant. A successful servant. In verses 10 to 12, the stanza begins with Isaiah saying it was the Lord's will to crush him. It doesn't mean the father was pleased and took took pleasure in doing it. What it means is it was his will, it was his plan, it was his desire. But remember what we just said about the submissive servant. So not only was it the Father's will to crush him, it was Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the Son, who submitted and voluntarily took that task on himself. And we have to keep both of those things in tension. So we can say it was the will of the Father to crush him, but it was the Son who joyfully and willingly embraced that will. And I don't know about you, but just how did he do that? How would he do that? And Isaiah gives us the answer. So does the writer of Hebrews. Isaiah says that 
He knew he would be successful. Verse 14 says it was out of the anguish of his soul that he was satisfied. The writer of Hebrews puts it a little different way. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Enduring its shame. It was that joy and that satisfaction. He knew he would be successful. He knew the many would become righteous. And that was worth him bearing their iniquities. And we see this promise language again. He will see his offspring. He will prosper. He will make many to be accounted righteous. He will bear their iniquities. He will be poured out or he will pour out his soul to the point of death. And he makes intercession. Now this is, listen. And this is going to seem rather strong, but it's, it needs to be said. His satisfaction and his joy was not in the fact that he simply made salvation possible for everyone. His satisfaction and joy was not due to securing the possibility of salvation by going halfway and then hoping that others would go the rest of the way. His satisfaction... Well, let me say this to you. I've debated saying I'm going to say it. God is not sitting on the edge of His seat hoping and wishing that somebody will come and accept Him to make Christ's sacrifice worthwhile. It's just not true. He was satisfied and joyful. He endured the cross, experienced the anguish of his soul because he would be successful and accomplish what the Father had sent him to do. Period. He shall act wisely. He shall act wisely. He has acted wisely. He was successful. He secured salvation of his own. He bore the sin of many. Those for whom he died will be saved. Those for whom he died will be his. He will be theirs. And it says there at the end of the, uh, in, in this last stanza, the reward, Christ's reward for doing what he did is us. Let that sink in a little bit. It's us. We're his reward. The church is his reward. He looked ahead and saw, and for the joy in his soul, because he saw us as his church, he endured the cross. Behold the successful servant. Why lies... He in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding. Good Christian fear, for sinners here the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Brothers and sisters, behold... Our promised, rejected, suffering, obedient, successful servant.
Merry Christmas. Let's pray together.